to our guest, a quick message from our sponsor. Back in June of 2020, I had COVID and I still have long COVID. And one of the symptoms of long COVID is insomnia. I'll wake up at two or three in the morning and can't get back to sleep for two or three, four hours. And it kind of ruins the whole day next day because you don't have any energy. So what did I do? I called Mike Lindell at my pillow and I got the entire sleep system. I have the mattress topper. I have the Giza sheets, which my colleague Christine Dolan says are regal. I have the my pillow, the my pillows themselves, and I have the comforter, which feels like a grandmother's house. It's so warm and cozy. And I have the regal duvet cover on on top of this comforter. So I have the entire sleep system. I literally work all day long. I'm exhausted. I lay down in this sleep system and literally just wake up the next morning. It's amazing how well I sleep. I, I can't get can't wait to get back to it. So what can you do? You can go to MyPillow.com and use promo code CDM and get the best discounts that Mike has to offer right now for the entire sleep system. But don't just get the sleep system. If you're buying household products, make sure to check with Mike Lindell first, promo code CDM to get the best prices. He has over 600 products. Don't go shop at the corporate communists and the big box retailers. Go to Mike first, support the patriotic movement, support free media at CDM, Use promo code CDM at MyPillow.com to get the best discounts and sleep really well going forward. And now let's get to our guest. So good morning, everybody. Um, today on In Plain Sight, we have David Bell from Brookstone Institute with us. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Christy. So David, um, you have been at WHO. You've been in the public health field for you know decades. What what is your take on what is going on in terms of WHO? I mean, you're you're a physician you know, your public health director, you've worked, you know, with many of the people in Geneva, you've been on the inside. What What is your take on, on everything that's been going on with the World Health Organization and this shift to, I, I guess, engulf everybody's health uh, as, a, as a policy now under the, you know, the director general? Yeah, um, there's obviously no easy answer to that question. Um, so, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's a bit difficult to know how to start with that. The, clearly, the um, response to COVID, which is part of the problem now, is um, a very unusual public health response. It's, it doesn't follow the normal principles that public health is based on. Um, and we can go into it, but you know it's clear that it's doing a lot more harm than um, than help. Um, we have a very strong pandemic preparedness movement now, which 
um, you know, is really the stimulus to this. It's got a lot of attention now with the WHO wanting to put through, you know, what is called a treaty or a pandemic preparedness instrument and the, the recent attempt to change the international health regulations. Um, and this is really aiming at a very, you know, in, historically very low burden of disease at the expense of much higher burdens of disease. So it's, again, there's a logical and we can go into why that is. Um, so why is this happening? I, I think, you know, the people are the same in these organisations that were there um, 20, 30 years ago. Um, so why have things changed? I think there's a a huge breakdown in the whole issues around conflict of interest and uh, private and corporate um, influence over health rather than countries and populations being in charge, which was the original idea behind the WHO. So, so let's talk about the conflict of interest um, mm. because, you know, in the last 25 years, we have what they call the public private partnerships. Yeah. And with that comes the money comes rolling through the front door, the back mm. door, the windows, you know, sinking through the roofs. Um, and, and from the, for those of us who have not worked on the inside, I mean, the closest that, that I can, you know, there was a time in my life when, when I helped to uh, develop the ethics program at the World Bank, but it's a different thing when you're actually working among the colleagues. So tell us about the influence of the money at the WHO when they decided to allow Bill Gates to walk through with a bundle of money. Yeah, and, and like all these things, it's not a sudden decision um, and it's not, you know, it's not on bad motives. Um, so, but, it ends, but it ends up creating conflicts. It, it does. Yeah, it does. And so, you know, if you go back 30 years, say, you know, it wasn't even called global health, you know, the, the term was tropical health or whatever then. And there was very little money. Um, the WHO was, you know, would give out a few thousand dollars um, in program funding, et cetera, to different programs. And there were African countries with high malaria, for instance, that had $40,000 annual budgets. So tiny amounts of money and there, you know, people came along and said they wanted to help this. It was obviously um, inequitable, et cetera, that so many people were suffering in this way and there was so little money for these huge um, health problems that could be managed better. So. You know, if you're in WHO and someone comes along and says that, um, you know, they will fund X program and we can work together and the private sector is very good at business and understanding commerce, et cetera, and they can help build more sustainable structures, et cetera, then it's very attractive. And so WHO had been very careful about conflict of interest, about private companies being involved in meetings and that sort of thing. Um, First, it sort of came through foundations of private individuals and now private companies are, are much more involved. A lot of money has come with that. It's um, so, and not just through WHO, obviously, but the Global Fund and then Gavi was developed, SEPI more recently for pandemics. So a lot of money flows into these global health problems and a lot of that money has helped save a lot of lives. But in the process, it has broken down the structures that tried to keep private interest out and for-profit um, motives out. And 
has allowed them, because the funding is so directed by these people, it's allowed them to really direct a lot of what is happening. When you say directed by these people, how does that work? So the yes. States walks in with a zillion dollars, puts it on the table. Um, how big is his voice on the table? Well, he and he and others have a very big voice because they, you know, that you fund a program at WHO, you're funding staff, you're funding um, their teams, etc. So if you refuse that funding, you may be out of a job, your team may be you know, have no more salary, they'll be out of a job. So a lot of jobs are dependent on this now. And that, you know, inevitably, um, it, it uh, we're all human, we tend to bend the rules to keep a job and to keep our staff in a job. And you can understand that. So it allows these organisations to get very strong direction on, you know, you will use this money for this particular purpose, um, you hire these people even to do it, etc. And again, this isn't, you know, it may be on good motives from these people, but these people who are these private interests are individuals who have a completely different background to the populations they're dealing with from different cultures, behavior, et cetera. So it's sort of ridiculous to think that they could know better than the people on the ground. So you're concentrating the decisions for populations of billions for their health care in the hands of a very few individuals, essentially, rather than in those billions of people. And those individuals, they may be doing this for altruistic reasons, they may be doing it purely for profit. Either way, they're not going to have this, they're not going to understand the priorities of these populations. So if you if you were knowing what you know and with your background, David, mm. um, if you were given the opportunity to change the situation on on the whole framework of, of global health right now, what would you do? Um, how, would you how would you reverse yeah. where we are today? Is it possible to get this on track? It's difficult. So we, we have now we have private funding for very large private funding for global health schools or colleges, as we call them. So a lot of universities in North America and in Europe have private funding that supports their um, the training of the people who work in these organizations. Where did that money come from? Uh, from there is large grants, say, for Johns Hopkins from um, think Rockefeller and from, you know, from Gates to UW, et cetera. And, you know, again, the, these can be um, well-intentioned, but the result is that you end up getting a lot of wealthy North American and European students dominating global health um, with very different backgrounds to, you know, if that money was invested, say, in the University of Zambia, University of Nairobi or something, you would get very different outcomes from that. Mm -hmm. So, so we have control of to a large extent over a lot of the colleges we have a lot of the research groups funded by these same individuals or heavily depend on that and if they're not funded by them they want to be because that's where a lot of money can potentially come from so they want to stay on the good side of them we have um the the yeah i mean the organizations such as who and particularly gavi 
Unitaid, et cetera, which are other organizations alongside WHO where they don't claim to have such issues with conflict of interest. They have private people or the representatives on their boards. And we have, because of money influencing government, so it's very different. You know, there are a lot of areas now where these private individuals and corporations have very strong influence on what is going on. It's going to be very hard to break that down. The, the you know, you could argue that, you know, perhaps these corporations, these individuals should pay tax and the tax should go in, you know, more tax, the tax should go into government funding, et cetera. Um, it, or you, you need to perhaps, in the end, I think we need to accept that there are, you know, we, we, we've lost the, the primacy of human rights and of individual choice. And we've substituted that for give a lot of money to a health program and the population will be better off. And the, the WHO is you know, originally built around the idea of human rights and individual choice. And yeah, the Alma-Ata agreement in the 70s, et cetera, strengthened that community control. So I think, you know, I think we need to go back to there. It's, we don't want to go back to extremely underfunded programs, but then, you know, this is very deep. So then you need to improve the economies of countries so that they don't need outside help, et cetera. So there's no simple solution to this. There are some simple things we can do, such as um, put in place very strong conflict of interest clauses, where if you're profiting from a say a pharmaceutical choice in public health then you can have no role in the decisions that promote or remove um, that pharmaceutical from widespread use so but it, it is difficult to do that if these same funders are say you know are already in that decision making role there they also fund regulatory agencies etc so so, so how, I guess let's start with the basic question. Mm. How corrupt is the WHO from your perspective today? And, 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 and has, has the, has the lid come off now in, in light of uh, the, the, the last two and a half years? I mean, you know, when, when people think about what some people want to do, like turn over your health, let's say you, you live in, mm. Omaha, Nebraska, and all of a sudden your health is going, which is defined of one world health of animals, plants, human beings interacting. And that philosophy is now and responsibility is being turned over to the WHO. And it could have an effect on your daily life. How, I mean, you know, at what point, where do these, what table are these people, you know, sitting at when they're coming up with those type of decisions? Because it, because the essence in the beginning of WHO was based on human rights. And when you start, mm. when you start dictating to people that is, and you don't have medical autonomy, that, that is, 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 is a, that's the opposite of why WHO was set up. Yeah, it is. Um, so, uh, I, I, you know, 
it's a it's a human institution. It's it's made up of humans. It's not an entity in itself. You know, it's a sum of its parts. Most people in WHO will have joined for a very good reason because they wanted to do something useful. They, it's also an interesting job. You get to travel all those things. They're not, right. you know, they're like the rest of us. Yeah. Um, you could stay in an institution for a long time and the institution starts to become more important than its role. And, and we see that, you know, I, I think you can take, say, the problems that the Catholic Church had as an example where, you know, the church does not support um, child molestation, but it clearly covered up a lot of that because it was felt that if it got out, the institution would be tarnished and that would harm And it was. It was, and they yeah, were and it, they were they were afraid that they were going to empty the pews, and it happened, and course, they were going to yeah. they were going to be hurt financially, and that happened. Yes, because um, as humans, we tend to be cowards, I think, and we take the easy route and cover things up rather than face what we've done. That's right. So, so WHO is a, a large institution. It's you know that there are people in WHO who are trying hard to get information out to. Um, and in other organizations such as UNICEF, where they've done very good um, monitoring of the harms from lockdowns, for instance, the children dying, the mothers dying in childbirth, the um, girls being pushed into, you know, child marriage and that sort of thing. So people are trying to document these. So it's got, but there are also people at the top who are clearly working very closely with large corporations who are directly benefiting from these decisions which are against previous norms of public health. So, 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 da so David, I mean, how far do you want to take this? Can we name names? I mean, I know for a fact that um, Tedros, was, when he was Minister of Health in Ethiopia, he had a lot of problems. He was investigated by the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria. I know the people who actually did that investigation. So, I mean, you know, we we have, you know, I've investigated human trafficking and mm. I've also investigated human trafficking by people at the UN as well. And, you know, it's, there are scandals at the, within the UN family yes. and any of these institutions. And if now isn't the time to speak out about the WHO, I don't know when it should be. Because th this is this is a catastrophic. Oh no! Absolutely, now it's the time. Um, now is the time for now is the time, but, yeah. get them out of the way. Get them out of leadership. I, I don't know if anybody should be prosecuted, but I mean, but at mm. this point in time, it's a name and shame because this affects everybody across the globe. And if there is any level of what we call conflict of interest, which is a nice, polite, diplomatic way. Mm corruption. Um, this is the time for people to, to step up. And I know it's hard for people to do that because they're afraid of their job, but people are dying. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the aim of what we're trying to do is fix this problem. Um, and, and which means people are going to have to step down. People are going to have to step down. Clearly, we're going to have to change the way institutions work. We're going to have to exclude a lot of people from having a say in these issues. Um, you know, to, just to wind back, you know, what has actually happened? Um, the WHO strongly pushed, and they're very careful in the way, but they've strongly pushed for lockdowns globally. 
Mm -hmm. um, and close, including closing of schools, closing of work. Um, and closing, why? Closing why, of borders. Why would they do that? Tell us from the inside how that works. Yeah. Well, why, would uh, the, why would somebody at the WHO say, this is a really good idea. Let's just lock everybody down. Let's close the schools, close the churches, keep the liquor stores open, keep the grocery stores open, but have everybody masked. Yeah, so they, they've done this in quite clever ways. And they, they never explicit in what they say, but they've obviously yeah, pushed very hard for these policies. Um, and they we know that they have killed probably millions of children. I mean, UNICEF just in 2020 estimate almost a quarter of a million children died in South Asia, infants and the young children from lockdowns. From, from the lockdowns. So it, it extrapolate that to the rest of Asia, to Africa, to parts of South America, where we know that child mortality is very dependent on GDP and on access to healthcare. And we can fairly confidently say millions of children have been killed by lockdowns. Yeah. Um, we've stopped vaccinations of vaccines that do help children stop children from dying in closing schools we've pushed girls into child marriage where you know they're they're raped every night by some old man mm -hmm. um you know this is a reality of what we of what has happened in public health um so so, are, so are people afraid to speak up on the inside? Yeah, I, I, they're afraid to speak up. It's a very hierarchical organisation. So, you know, it's clear that these things have happened. It's clear that, and this is for a disease that, you know, certainly in Western countries, kills people at an average age of 80 or so, and mostly people who had a short life expectancy because they were going to die soon. So, you know, this doesn't... Um, undo the you know the the seriousness or the sadness of someone dying but a quarter of a million children dying in south asia in eight months is pretty sad but it hardly made the media there was one small article on the bbc it's the only you know mainstream media information i saw on that mm -hmm. at the time when every death of every old person in say the us was being heralded on the front page of the new york times so you know, there's a few things that happen. We, you know, it's not just the WHO, obviously, it's the media that have pushed this. It's the um, companies behind it. It's, and it's been enabled by a very strong sort of propaganda sort of effort of making people, you know, enabling people to pretend that they're doing something good. So the idea, you know, all in this together, vaccine equity and these really hollow phrases which have enabled people to pretend to themselves that they're not part of the harm or that it's for the greater good. Um, you know, it's clearly not. If you look at who dies of COVID and who gets very sick from COVID and their age groups and comorbidities, and you compare that with malaria, which is getting, is, you know, 90% under five-year-old, you know, the deaths. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, in, you know, in 2020, there's about a 65,000 extra children died from malaria alone it's probably much worse now so hiv is going backwards tuberculosis which kills 1.6 million people a year is going backwards uh, we have you know, 130 million people on the edge of starvation that weren't there before and that will increase clearly from what's happening now so the who knew this when they were doing it the people oh. in the who knew that they were part of this they knew that they were doing this and they still did it so 
you know, why that happened, you know, we have to understand why to stop it. But there are these issues that clearly there's a lot of for-profit, you know, and profiteering in this. A lot of people, while this has been happening, a lot of people who are instrumental in the WHO and what they're doing have got very, very rich to the tune of, you know, billions or tens of billions of dollars additional profit. So, you know, it is clearly an obvious, you know, to a, you know, a squash stone that, that there's, yeah, that there is, if not corruption, there is absolutely rampant, um, uncontrolled, in greed going on here. We're how many, how many people are being paid on the side, David? Do you think? How many people are being influenced by by you know the wallet of uh, either pharma or Bill Gates or any of the people that Bill Gates has brought in to, to finance Gabby and Seppi? I was on I was on telephone yeah. calls listening to some some of these people from Gabby and Seppi. They don't live on the same planet that I do. So yeah, so I mean, this is this is it's it's intense, but it's a conversation yeah, that needs yeah. to be had, and that if people do not face it, it it's going to get worse for everybody. No, absolutely. Um, so a, a lot of this, I think, is you know certainly in in the realm of the sort of global health, the average person working in that area, it's not you know huge profit taking. It's you will lose your salary, you will lose your staff and your team and your reputation if you don't go along with it. So people well, in WHO do about, this because they want their job. Let's talk about the, the 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 benefits on the inside if you work at WHO. What are the what are the benefits that most of the public doesn't even realize in terms of so it, it's a good salary. It's you know in the region of one to two hundred thousand a year based salary usually. Um, you get up to 40, 50% extra on top of that with um, a sort of living allowance, depending on where you are. So a hardship allowance, et cetera. Um, you get about 75% or more um, support for any children in education up to uh, and including university, at least undergraduate, sometimes postgraduate. Uh, there's very good healthcare, um, et cetera. So, you can see with a package, people will take home a quarter of a million or, you know, three, four hundred thousand dollars potentially. Um, you, you travel in business class for any long trips. You stay in very nice hotels, etc. And, you know, th this this sort of gets to people. So I, I've seen that happen. And, you know, it, it when you when you travel, you're an ordinary person. You start traveling in business class, staying in five star hotels. You get picked up by a UN vehicle at the airport, that sort of thing. You go through a diplomatic channel when you get to the airport so you don't have to stand in a queue. It's really difficult not to start thinking you're particularly important. Mm -hmm. um, and you see this also with the people who work for these very rich people. It, it's a little bit like a drug. You start seeing yourself as particularly important. And so you, you start to think that you're essentially you're superior to other people and that you have a right to decide what they should do. And you, you start just if you know, as humans, we start justifying um, you know, yes, we, we 
harming a lot of children. I actually, I mean, yeah, I don't know the. There is there uh, is an uh, attitude for a lot of these people of you know it, it, we may be harming a lot of children and they they commodify them they turn them into yeah, the, yeah they turn them into numbers. I, I I you know it's hard to know how people do this. I mean, you've worked in child sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. um, you know. They don't see the human face. Yeah, it's you don't see the human face, or it's just a name. You know that there's, there's it's a just feeling. a number. It's just a name. It's, it's just a statistic. It's a number, and yeah, I think yeah, at, at a higher level, I think people start to see humans as just lumps of chemistry and biology. Um, but for the people in WHO, yeah, it's numbers and it's a human face, and they even change the number. So we used to talk about disease burden in terms of life years lost so disability adjusted life years quality adjusted life years so which means that if someone dies at 80 and they've lost two years of life that's different than someone dying at three and losing 75 years of life and that used to be taken into account for looking at diseases if you do that for COVID, it just doesn't rate this is why we only ever hear mortality from who from IHME at you know University of Washington that was one of the pushes of you know the, the whole idea of life years lost etc disease global burden of disease if you do that for COVID it doesn't rate as a significant problem compared to everything else we're dealing with so you know the fact that that has changed tells you there's something deeply wrong and that someone has an interest in prioritizing COVID not because of its disease burden but because of something else so what do you what do you think is going on then? I mean, if they didn't, if they if the lockdown was was hurting was hurting a quarter of a million children. I mean, in, in, well, in a, a lot more. That's in six countries in is, okay, in, so, in nine months. Yeah, nine months. Okay, um, so so th that that should have been a red flag to somebody to say this is a really one. bad idea. Although we already knew that was going to happen. You know, if you lock down people in densely populated cities and slums. You don't stop them mixing with other people because they have to go out to the latrine. They have to go out. They don't have a refrigerator. They go every day to buy food. And you change nothing there. All you do is cut their income. And WHO absolutely knew this because they've written it before. So all they knew that, you know, if you lock down some areas in India or large African cities or, you know, densely populated areas, some's a bad word. But you, you, um, you don't stop people mixing at all. You do absolutely nothing to the spread of a respiratory virus, but you cut the family's income so they can no longer afford basic health care. They can no longer afford enough food for the children. It's, a, you know, the, the kids can't go to college anymore. And I know of people who, you know, you close the tourist industry, you close borders. The women who were working in hotels trying to get to a point where they can go to university, go to college and make something for themselves, all that is gone. So all those women who were trying to get independent have gone. And the people who were advocating for that in the West are absolutely silent. So WHO knew this, the people in WHO knew this, and UNICEF, et cetera. You know, UNICEF is now the implementing part for COVAX, which is mass vaccination against COVID of already immune people in Africa and Asia um, with a vaccine that has an efficacy, you know, for about three to six months. And is at a higher cost of any than any other health program. That's COVAX. UNICEF, which is dedicated to children, is the implementing partner. If you go to the UNICEF site, 
you'll see all this stuff about this disease that's predominantly affecting old people. And, you know, yet we have an absolute crisis in children um, dying much faster than they have for many, many years across mm -hmm. much of the world. This should be the crisis for UNICEF, but all their concentration seems to be on COVAX, which is, you know, mass vaccination with these vaccines that don't last very long. For, pe for people who are already immune and, uh, you know, half of sub-Saharan Africa is under 20 years of age. Right. So they're at minimal risk. I mean, it, it's a nonsense from a public health point of view. So what do, what do you think of the fact that the African countries put, have pushed back on some of these WHO policies? I'm proud of the Africans. I, I think that they're, the fact that they're standing up and saying to the leadership at the WHO, no, we're not going to go along with this. Yeah. It's, no, we're not going to go along with, with, with you're going to make the decisions because you don't allow somebody to make a decision who's made this catastrophic of a mistake in terms of their policy. No, you don't. I mean, it's clearly someone who instituted widespread lockdowns in African countries for this virus and who kept them going month after month when it's absolutely clear that very few people are dying in Africa of it. Right. Um, you know, outside of South Africa where people are, you know, less fit and, um, you know, there's more obesity, diabetes, and they're older. So the, most of the countries of sub-Saharan Africa, the, the mortality has been tiny. And you expect that because of the age range and fitness. So, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, Africa is a huge hope for the world. Um, I think, you know, the average person in Africa can see that their problems are very different. They're getting enough food to feed the family. They're getting their kids in a decent school where they can get a basic education. They're getting um, basic health care and, you know, for birthing, for to keep their infants alive when they get, you know, a cough and a fever and they're worried about pneumonia or malaria or whatever. So th that's the problems of these people. And, you know, getting enough, getting enough firewood to actually cook food, et cetera. So when they, they see this huge effort by basically a bunch of white people from Europe and North America to, um, you know, it, it, and there's a colonial past here, so that it's worth right. pointing that out. Mm -hmm. they, they see that and I think they probably think this is just more of the same. It's colonialism over again. You know, th this is huge money we're talking about. These countries are being driven be very poor they have huge resources which the world needs you know the great reset etc they need cobalt they need lithium they need these um rare earths that are mostly in these low-income countries um I, I was watching a video from a few years ago just the other day of children mining cobalt in drc which you know mm. most people i hope know about so that we can have cheap cell phones and we can have cheaper you know more affordable um electric cars so that politicians can sort of virtue signal in electric cars and um yeah if people only realize where the what what the conditions are for those kids that mine the cobalt absolutely yeah they, they, i mean that's yeah. that's the face of reality so yeah and, and they've seen this before they saw it when motoring started to become a big thing in the west and the rubber plantations 
again in DRC, as mm -hmm. you know, Belgian Congo as it was then. Right. And the scandal that arose around that, we're seeing exactly the same thing over again, in, unfortunately in the same country, but in a lot of other countries as well. And you know, the, the, the interesting thing about this is that it comes to, you know, how do you fix this? Um, is it possible uh, to be fixed? I mean, is, is, does, are people like Bill Gates have such a hold on this? I mean, can, I mean, what, what, is, what do people think of Bill Gates inside the WHO? I mean, I, I personally, and I've said this publicly before, I don't think people would give Bill Gates the time of day if he, if he didn't have any money. Yeah, so I've been out of WHO for 10 years, but I work in that sort of global health community. Um, and, you know, I've been, much of my salary over the years has come from um, Bill Gates. And uh, I, you know, I can't say what drives him or other people. And I think it's helpful not to focusing on single personalities it's there's a systemic problem here um i think that and it comes back to this whole conflict of interest issue but uh, i think most you know people will take money if it's given to them and they can convince themselves that there's some good to come out of it then they will overlook the potential long-term harms in order to do that good uh, I think most people in WHO, you know, a lot of them see him as someone who has kept their organisation afloat when it was short of money. Um, and that if people, you know, you see it that way, you, when you've been WHO for a long time, you see the organisation is very important. And it starts to, you know, more important, as I said, than, than the cause that it's supposed to be fighting. But Bill Gates so, isn't just giving money to WHO. He doesn't just make money and you know off his investments in pharmaceuticals. He's also spent, you know, several hundreds of millions of dollars in buying <clears throat> media all over the world. I mean, we're not talking yes. about doing a sponsorship. We're talking about paying the salaries, and so hence it keeps him yeah. from being criticized. That's that's the kind of money. When, when you have money that protects you from, from, from exposing your corruption, that's paying people off. That's not paying a salary. Yeah, so it is. So they will justify it again in those organizations that are saying that it's funding for global development and getting information out on global development is a good thing. So people will always justify this. And they always find a way to make it, you know, it's okay. I, I, I can keep an eye on things and make sure it's not a force for bad. This is, I think, where it comes to, if we're going to fix this, we have to dial back to, you know, we have to have some difficult, uh, we have to put some difficult decisions in place that say a conflict, you know, like around the whole idea of conflict of interest cups and so on, where we cannot even let this in the door, even if it looks like it's a good thing. We have to, you know, it's like human rights, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, there's about what is it, 25 or 26, 28 articles on, you know, the right to education, um, shouldn't have slavery, etc. Mm -hmm. And then there is the clause, as there is in other, like the Syracuse principles and so on, where it says, unless there's an emergency and then we can 
get around all this. I think the answer to this is to take out those clauses. And we've got to build institutions where we say that these particular things are inviolable. Like, you know, the US Constitution says that, you know, free speech is essentially inviolable. I don't think, you know, it's, I'm not a legal expert. I don't think you can get around that just because there's an emergency. So we've, we've got to... We have stripped away people's liberties under this situation for the last two years. There's no doubt about it. We have. I mean, I guess in the end that has to come to a legal case, doesn't it? Whether that well, is legal. And I'm no expert here, but... People I mean, have to fight for it. I mean, it's very fragile. If, if nothing else, we have seen in the last two and a half years that freedom is very fragile, that you have to fight for it. And, and you, you we can't allow somebody to take it away. I think, I, I think the thing that was striking for me is that things that I have witnessed in third world countries, I actually witnessed in the United States. And that was shocking to me because I always had the sense yeah. that I could go back to the West. I never, yes. but when I saw it happening in the West, and it happened so fast that was the and people just lined up like sheep heading for the cliff as if they were birds and if they jumped off they could fly when in fact it was never going to happen yeah. and it's a very it's a very sad thing to see in your own homeland it is um, what, what i saw you know friends of mine that were in australia i thought yeah. australians would never ever succumb to what happened in the extreme lockdowns down there you know, and, and I thought that the, when the truckers took off across Canada, I thought, isn't that terrific? And yet Trudeau froze their bank accounts. And to me, yeah. that was like, wow, that's really happening in the West. And not their bank accounts only, but the bank accounts of people who supported them. That's right. Which means that it is no longer legitimate to support people who oppose a government. That's right. Um, and, and so this comes back to... You know, I mean, free speech is difficult. <clears throat> free speech can include um, the right to say, you know, this is where it becomes very difficult. You know, how far do you let free speech go? Do you let it go completely all the way? And do you trust people to um, manage that, you know, and sift out what is acceptable and what is not? Um, so, you know, we have difficulties you know, if someone's promoting hate or where do you draw a line there, et cetera. Um, I certainly wouldn't leave it up to, to Zuckerberg. No, you can't leave it up to individuals. Um, you can't, you, I mean, and that's that's the problem. That 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 yeah. That's the problem. If, if, people, if people don't want to have this, I mean, social media, I think it's a waste of time. I'm a little bit like the late Betty White when it comes to that. What a waste of time when people live on Twitter and, and Facebook. But at, at the same time, you know, when people are taking a look at tech today and quote unquote censorship and First Amendment, people are missing the boat here. They are partners with pharma. They get paid by pharma. Mm. They get paid. They make their money basically off of ads. So the ads include yes. pharma hires them and puts them on. I mean, it, it is just like putting ads on television. 
only they do it on social media. They do it on the internet. So it's not that, that these guys are doing it because, you know, they don't like what you're saying. They, what, they, what they're doing is they're being paid to keep the narrative up there for pharma and for Fauci's and for, for whatever the narrative is at the time that people are going to profit on. And it's commodifying people. Yes, it is. Um, and it's commodifying people, I think, because <clears throat> a lot of the people managing this <clears throat> don't see people as having intrinsic value. And um, Say that again, David, because that's <clears throat> an important message for people to hear from you, especially with your background. Well, yeah, I think they don't see people as having intrinsic value. And this is throughout history, isn't it? Um, how did we manage to put people on cattle trucks in the 1930s, the 1940s in, in Germany? And we should say we, because the Germans were ordinary people. And mm. I, you know, I used to think before all this happened, you know, I used to tell myself it could happen here because the Germans were ordinary people. Right. Um, and, and the public health professionals were very involved in what happened in Germany. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, you, you sort of think, yeah, it could happen, but it won't really. Um, it has, you know, to a large right. extent, yeah. And you know, this is a we, this is a global shame. It is. We we haven't put people on cattle trucks, but we have condemned hundreds of thousands of children knowingly to death um, through through what we've done. So, you know, it, it, we can sort of it comes back to the numbers, but there are numbers then as well. So yeah, I think that there's a, a deep thing here that people are not seeing people as completely equal worth and once you do that then i think you start to find it easier to um take out these clauses that say but if there's an emergency a few people can tell everyone else what to do i think if you see people as equal worth you've got to start seeing that um those people need to decide because they actually have whatever the situation, just as much right as anyone else. And, you know, as a community, we're going to have to make a decision together and not have one imposed. So, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, dialing back, I think <clears throat> we have to, we have to relook at how this has happened these clauses that have allowed people to become very influential in public health, the clauses that have allowed people to massively abrogate human rights, the clauses that have allowed media ownership and sponsorship to be so blatantly um, centralized, etc. And it's not just the, um, you know, you mentioned the sponsorship, but there's also you know, the, the largest shareholders of a lot of these media are the same as the largest shareholders of Pfizer, AstraZeneca, etc. Right, that's right. Um, so you know, from their point of view, we have large companies that their sole aim or their primary aim has to be to maximize return on investment. That's their role. That's why they're there as a company. That's mm -hmm. the job of the board, the job of the CEO. So if you have controlling interests in media and in pharma you wouldn't allow the media to massively harm the potential profit of the farmer. Right. You would use that media to improve the profits so that your shareholders are better off. I mean, that's just basic business. So 
that's why I think, <clears throat> you know, this is a lot of this, we have to look at it from that point of view. It's, um, you know, there are individuals, there are people, et cetera, but a lot of this is just, you know, that all makes sense from a business point of view if you don't see humans as being intrinsically important. So the most important thing is, you know, making money, it's the company, et cetera. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah, this is a, it's a fairly deep thing to change, but. Um, it's a very, it's, it's a broken mirror if you don't change it though. I mean, it's, 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 it's a pretty ugly situation that we are in globally right now. It's very ugly. It's very, it's very ugly. It's very deep. Um, and that there are a lot of people that have a lot, a lot of power, but not, but they, what, what they, what, what they don't have, they don't have, they can't, they can't get everybody. They can't sell it to everybody because there's too many people that are talking about how ugly a time this is right now in terms of history, because there, the, the, the overreaction by governments, the overreaction by healthcare uh, leadership has caused so much harm. Yeah. What did you think? What did you think, David, when, when uh, Anthony Fauci said, I am science? <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't surprised because that was sort of what we've been hearing for a long time. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, it's just silly. I mean, what, what can you say? You, you think, how, how can someone who says that be in a position of such influence? Um, and, and I don't know. Um, I don't know why someone actually, I mean, from a practical point of view, leaving him aside, I don't know how someone who is 81 years old can be the highest paid person on the federal payroll and still in a still in an active job at 81. It's, it's just strange to me. Um, and it's clearly unhealthy that someone is in the same job for about what, 35, 40 years. I mean, that, oh, yes. it, it's yes. in a public institution that that's, it's that, unhealthy. That, that's, that's, he can be the best person on earth, but it is still extremely unhealthy to do that. Well, it's unhealthy for him, for himself <clears throat> too. It's not just unhealthy for the institution. Yeah. Anybody who would be in the same job for 40 years, you, you, I'd question. You lose perspective. Yeah. Well, you, you not only lose perspective, but I mean, how boring. <laughs> How boring. Yes. Okay. I'm sorry. It, it, it's, you know, the, the person, the person leading should have a, a sense of adventure. Yeah. So they must be driven by something else. That's right. That's right. So, so having said that, David, your <clears throat> writing at um, Brownstone Institute is very provocative. It's very deep. It's very thoughtful. Um, and your message to people is, is recognizing that what has happened is not a good thing. Are you speaking, are you trying to get the word out there to people that are in your health industry to help them sift through this? To Because, I mean, it almost, it's almost, a, your writing is almost like a call to action. Yeah, I, I am. Um, you know, the, my expertise is in public health and the, the sort of my experiences in that area, I can speak on that you know, to a reasonable extent. Um, and to me, it is public health that is, is driving this, not because public health people are intrinsically bad, but because they've been co-opted into it, it initially unknowingly. Um, 
the, the, they've been used, as they have been in the past, you know, the, the Nazis and you know, the fascists in Italy and so on, they used public health to get the population on side and the public health professions went along with it because of, you know, uh, personal self-interest, etc. So there was a major driver then, it's a major driver now. You know, I don't know whether there's something about the sort of people that go into public health that makes us more susceptible to these things or whether it's just, you know, people, the public in general are scared of illness and death. So they listen to the medical profession more than others or the health professions. But the, the public health is a huge driver of what's happening now. And if the majority of people working in public health went back to the basic principles of public health, it's like, you know, you cannot cause more harm than good, mm. uh, for instance. And just how do you measure disease burden? And these basic, and, and, you know, no coercion. Humans have a right to choose their own health care. If you just went back to those three principles, this would stop. But it's the people aren't going back to that. So... Yeah, you know, I'm hoping that people can recognise the harm that is being done. Um, I, they know that deep down, I think, but they found a way to live with it. So I think we have to start keep putting this in front of people's faces so that they they find it very difficult to live with. David, where, where can people give us let the audience know where they can find your your writings at Brownstone? What's what's the the uh, website? I think it's brownstone.org, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, and then look up your know, public, it's mostly under public health. So there, there's a lot of writers there um, writing really interesting stuff. And I mean, the aim of Brownstone is to be very open to stimulate a wide range of um, discussion. That's what we've lost over the last two years. So if we can get back to that, that'll be a big step towards. Right. Is that what most of the scholars at the Brownstone, the writers over there, is that is that what they're trying to do, is to wake people up? Yes, I think so. They're trying to wake people up, yeah, by ex you know, essentially exposing what is happening, making us face it. Good for you guys. Good for you guys. Well, I, I know it, it was hard for when we first started to do the uh, interviews with the Vax injured because nobody in the mainstream media was doing it. And having come from the mainstream media, I was determined to put a a face and get them on camera so people would understand that now these are these uh, shots are not safe and effective for everyone yeah they're, they're like any pharmaceutical there's risks and there's benefits um mm -hmm. I, I you know yeah the, i mean the the, the recent uh, there's risks and there's benefits and normally you have really rigorous um trials and so on to to work out which of those is predominant we've sort of lost that at the moment. That's true. That's true. But when people people like you still are writing and speaking out and who have been on the inside, it's very, very important. It's very important. Um, so David, I, we're going to have you back um, as this goes on, because this isn't the situation is. Uh, it's going to take a while. Yeah. It's going to take it's going to take a while, but it, it's it, going to get much worse before it gets better, unfortunately, for a lot of people. Yeah. Why do you say that? Before we leave, why do you say that? Uh, because of what's happened to food security, supply lines, etc., in much of the world, where you know a, a small reduction in GDP has huge impact on people's health and on mm. on particularly children's death. 
and we we set up now a situation where that's almost inevitable so, so the recovery is not going to be what everybody expects it to be no and you know that there is in the background this push to make it much easier to do these sorts of responses in the future and to um, increase the values of viruses um, without any clear metrics on when we act so that it will make it much easier for the people who've run this current mess to um, run more messes in the future more frequently. So, you know, the pandemics are a rare event. They come about once a generation and the mortality from them historically, you know, since 1920, when the Spanish flu died out, they've been very low mortality overall. Um, but we're going to see a lot more. If, if what happens now, if what's being pushed for goes through with the, um, the treaties, etc., there's going to be a, a situation where it's going to be much easier to declare emergencies, to find reasons for declaring emergencies, and then to institute these extremely harmful measures on humanity. So. That's um, what people should fight against us. That's what we should fight against. So, you know, just from the results of COVID, we're going to have a huge problem in the future. If we, um, you know, those, those girls in marriage, they're, they're malnourished infants, etc. If they survive, they will be worse off for life. Um, this will be compounded every time we do this again. So yeah. it, it it's, 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 it's a, it's a large, large stain. Yeah. That for, and, and, and we're all responsible for this because we, we, yeah, we are. I don't stuff. think it's, yeah. you know, I'd like to blame everything on, on Fauci or Gates. No, it's easy, it, but it's it, not. It's, we have allowed this to happen to us. Yes, and people need to absolutely. Up and say, we're not going to take this anymore. Yeah. Yeah. David, we'll have you back. Thank you very much. Thanks, Happy Bye. Father's Day. Ah, uh, thank you. <laughs>